Hello and welcome to Pod Academy. When you use a sat-nav or check a modern weather forecast, you're using technology made possible by space exploration. Emerging space industries include tourism and some tentative plans to mine asteroids or the moon for rare materials. Space now has its lawyers, its policymakers, and even its ethicists. Robert Seddon went to King's College London to meet Tony Milligan, a moral philosopher who's worked extensively on the ethics of space exploration. He started by asking Tony how and why did it all begin? Well, that's uh, a piece of guidance from my students, in fact. There was a student who wanted to work on the issue of terraforming, which is one of the big, sexy issues in, in, in space ethics. And I, I thought, hmm, does the world really need this to be done? And then I looked into it and he produced the work and, and it was a good, it was a good piece of work. So I thought this bears looking into a little bit closer. So I, I did a short course and the, the blurb advertising the course was picked up by Space Policy, the, the journal, and they invited me to write an article. And then from the article, other people wanted other things. So it, it sort of snowballed into, uh, a new research direction for me, which which was good because it's it's a fresh area and it's interesting stuff, and you're also you're also dealing with with things that matter, and that's always a nice added bonus. Do you see much engagement from people involved in space industries in practical terms? Well, up to a point, I think the. There are people who want to have a story about the importance of of space. Elon Musk wants to have a story about uh, backing up the biosphere and the the ethical significance of what they're what they're doing. And you know he's got shareholders that he has to has to keep happy and so on. So uh, there is that high level interest, and the stories aren't necessarily particularly convincing ones from an academic ethic, ethicist's point of view, but they're, they're interesting stories. And then you've got the wilder reaches of the ethics of space, which is all about really, really big questions, and it, it doesn't connect up with the, the agencies. And then you've got stuff that's done by people like myself, Jacques Arnault, and we try in our own modest ways to be embedded. No, we would like ideally more of a dialogue, I think, with the, the players within industry, but you already have the, the agencies, you have NASA, you have the European Space Agency, and we connect up uh, at, at that level. And uh, So at the moment, for example, there's a, a white paper getting put together. I'm meant to be doing editing. I'll diligently do that tomorrow on the on the white paper. And that's for the establishing of a, a, a European Institute for a, Astrobiology and the role of the the key people that you would want across across Europe uh, with some feed in from, from NASA people and, and, and elsewhere. But, uh, the rationale to get that 
off the ground and and and, uh, and funded. And one of the things that we see in the white paper is that we we need to get to move just beyond that level of academics talking to the institutions. We also need much more of a dialogue with people from industry. Do you think Musk and Co will get what they want, or we'll have to do something else? Hey, well, nobody ever gets quite what they want, or if they do, then they're never quite sure that they want. It's what they wanted. Uh, when you've got investors, when it's a big money game, when there's a lot on the line, you have to sell things quite hard. So it's difficult to understand, or difficult to separate out what's the what's the image, what's the the sales pattern from what he realistically expects will be will be realised. One of the things that that usually is over-optimistic is timescales. So there are people Mars One and so on. I mean, that's not Elon Musk. Musk's much more... Uh, I mean, he's got the technology to do stuff. Mars One doesn't. But they'll talk about, uh, well, we're going to put somebody on Mars within a couple of years, and that's ridiculous. There's nothing... There's no way to get them there. So they'll change their timescale and so on. And you get the same thing up to a point with Musk, eh, and you get the same thing up to a point with Richard Branson and Virgin Galactic. So there they have this this um, this uh, this plane which will take you up into space, just the very tip of it, just the very very edge of it. And they have a small scale model, and it's going to be simple to scale it up. Ten years later, and the scaling up process looks like it might finally be heading somewhere. So it happens. Progress gets made in terms of the, the achievement of the goals which have been set by the big financial players. But the progress doesn't necessarily get made within the timescales that they initially envisage or even within the timescales that they generally revise a couple of years down the, uh, down the line. And does it also apply to the ethics of space exploration? Yeah, yeah. Where are we in terms of the development of the of the ethics? Well, we're in a better situation than we were ten, fifteen years ago because we have more of a couple of things. We have more of a serious literature, good scholars who who've done their work and are familiar with the various ethical theories and. They're not just, they don't just sit down and say, well, we have three ethical theories, and we have deontology, and we have consequentialism, and we have virtue ethics, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to write a paper which applies each of these to this particular problem in space ethics. You know, that's, not, that's not kind of ideal, because the appreciation of the ethical theories doesn't flow through every line that they have, so it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of forced. So we have a better literature. But we also have a emerging international community of scholars who are, who are much more connected up to one another and are, are much more familiar with each other's other work. We go to the same conferences, we sit in the same panel, we, we publish in the same, uh, in the, the same journals and, and edited, edited volumes. And that's that's crucial in terms of separating out what's realistic space ethics from what's a more speculative 
a speculative thing because nobody does it all in their little one. You have to have that that disciplining element of a, of a, an emerging and expanding a, and well-informed community of, of fellow scholars to. <laughs> but I need that to make sure that I don't say quite as many crazy things as I might otherwise say. I mean, I still say crazy things, obviously, but uh, not so many as I as, as I as I would. I suppose the sceptical position would be something like, look, this is perfect melting territory. It's all empty space, it's rocks. These are resources, three for taking by a person you'll be able to get to them. How can there possibly be more concern here? Well, I think there's a number of a number of reasons why there can be moral concern. First of all, you could run those arguments with the Grand Canyon, you could run them with Ayers Rock, but <laughs> nobody's about to, to go mine Ayers Rock for driveway chips. You know, there would be objections. Uh, nobody's about to say that, look, we have this big, big space in the United States, uh, we have got some serious problems in terms of agricultural waste, let's dump all the agricultural waste into the Grand Canyon. You know, technically feasible, but nobody's going to buy it. And that's because places sometimes are deemed to have a certain kind of significance. And you can run the arguments about why that is the case. Some of them appeal to the significance that these places have in terms of a of human history and culture and the ways that we've interacted with them. And that's certainly the case with Ayers Rock. You know, Ayers Rock is this sacred this sacred site, so you, you don't get to muck about with that any more than you get to muck about with Stonehenge. And if somebody says, no, it's just a rock, or if somebody says, eh, these are just blue stones at, uh, at Stonehenge, so I'm going to take them and use them in a nearby building, nobody's going to buy that. So uh, when you get into the detail, if somebody asks you to, if somebody's asked, what is your ethical theory? Then you'll probably reply in in terms that make it seem that, that humans, or perhaps on an extended account, humans and other sentient creatures are the only things that you can have a ethical concern about. But then, when you look at the way in which they actually respond and the way in which people lead their lives, then you see a, a much broader patterning. A wider range of things turn out to be ethically significant to beings of our sort. So. When it comes to the moon, for example, you're talking about something that's been culturally significant for a very long period of time. But you're also talking about one of the few places within the solar system where we could actually, where we could actually go. You know, you, limited number of planets. One of them is just too close to the sun. You, you just, it's a, a nice way to, to get cremated. If you go outwards to the, the further reaches of the solar system, then you're reaching gas giants. Now, we don't know if we're ever going to be able to do anything even with the gas giants. And the reason for that is that you start to get to, because they are enormously big compared to the Earth, you start to get really big gravitational problems. These are big gravitational wells that if you fall into them, it's going to take a lot of energy to, to, uh, to get back out. So that means places like Mars and the Moon you know, these are the big candidates for other large-scale bodies within the solar system that we could actually envisage human beings setting on. So we don't necessarily want to turn them into into quarries, uh, or we don't want to use all of them as, uh, as as quarries, both for our own sakes and for the sakes of sake of future humans. Now, 
there's a thought there that, well, that's just limiting ourselves to thinking about the solar system. When we get out and beyond that, as Star Trek so repeatedly informs us we will, then it'll be hunky-dory. There'll be all of these worlds for us to explore and complete with uh, arabesque civilizations or something like that. But uh, the reality is we don't know that we're ever going to be in a position to get beyond the solar system. And therefore, even in terms of what is a value of human for humans, in terms of our human future, in terms of what there will be for future generations of, of humans to to enjoy and to uh, to utilize and to live as live as part of, we're talking about a very very small, limited resource, and limited resources of a valuable sort are the kinds of things that you that you cherish. So, so I'm going to kick the the argument that well, it's just a, these are just rocks. I'm going to kick that into the long grass and say that that doesn't understand. It shows a lack of understanding of what we are and a lack of understanding of what's available to us. Say, damaging the moon. The way the moon looks, the culturally significant way the moon looks, is, there's a plausible case for thinking it's already been damaged and defaced, mm-hmm. hasn't it? What more could a quarry do? Well, that's a, an interesting question. The, suppose we take a, an ethical concept that is sometimes applied to the moon, and that's the concept of integrity. Now, if you look at, what is it, uh, Futurama, now, Futurama, I think, they turn the moon, isn't they? they turn it into a golf course. And, and it's the, the incongruity of, you know, the moon just being used as this mundane object, as a, as a, a lunar golf course. And there's, or is it Mars that do that with? They do something. It's a theme park in the, or in the moon. Anyway, it's inappropriate. It's inappropriate uses. And it's the, the way in which the, the comic utilization is so out of keeping with the, with the character of the, of, of the place, which makes it a, Kind of, which makes it a kind of funny thing. But does that mean that even if we think that certain kinds of uses of the moon or of Mars would be, as it were, not just change but damage in some way, violate the integrity of these places? That doesn't mean to say that that all change is all change is ruled out. Nor could all change be ruled out for the reasons that you that you've mentioned. Even though the lunar surface is it's to a large extent, you know, <laughs> as it were, for an a bit billion years ago, there's there's impacts upon the moon all of the time. So then we have to develop some kind of ethical theory about the kinds of changes that would seem reasonable, would be permissible, and the and the kinds of changes which would which would rob future generations of the opportunity to, uh, to to experience the moon in, in particular ways, to rob them of that and opportunity to have, as it were, wilderness experiences. Well, I think changes that could be seen as positive. I'm thinking of the idea, which perhaps you'd want to reject, that someday we might terraform Mars and make it more Earth-like, turn a dead world into a living one. Mm-hmm. It, well, it's... Uh, I'm not sure if it's a dead world. It, it, we we tend to use terminology that it, that loads the bases. So if it's dead, then obviously if we reanimate, then that's a wonderful thing. But uh, we don't know if there was ever life there, and if there wasn't life there, it doesn't make 
that much sense to speak of it. It's a, it's a, it's a dead world. But another one that, that's, that's used is barren world. In, in, in but it's... Uh, there are different ways of, of speaking about about, uh, about these places. To say dead and to say barren suggests one thing, to point out that the biggest volcano in the solar system is on Mars. You've got, you, you've got Olympus Mons. Uh, to uh, point out that you have the Valles Marineris, which would have, you could fit the Grand Canyon into the Valles multiple, multiple times. You have this, uh, you have the unique geology, you have the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the awesome, uh, the, the awesome landscape of the, uh, of the, the place. Features that, for example, would be as significant, perhaps, to humans who settle upon Mars at some point in the future, as, say, Ayers Rock or Stonehenge are to, are to us. Um, now, do we, do we want to rob them of that kind of opportunity? Do we want to preserve the opportunities of, of encountering the most... Uh, the most striking and remarkable features of, of Mars, which are features nowhere, nowhere reproduced within the, uh, the solar system. It's very unique, very unique. Some of the bias language we use, even in relation to wilderness on Earth, mm-hmm. we call it pristine, untouched, unspoilt, seems to be quite sceptical about human involvement. And I think there's something similar uh, so sometimes in relation to space, the idea that we haven't always been responsible stewards of our own Earth, that we'd better get it right this time, but we might risk polluting space that we already are, perhaps? Yeah, yeah. well, we already we already have, have done. We do all of those uh, to improve telecommunications back in the... What was it the, in, the, in, in the 60s, all of those uh, millions of little dipole antennae <laughs> blasted that went into space with the notion that we'd just... Bump, helped bounce the signals back, but of course there, there are an absolute menace out there, out there now, and all the all the space junk that we're developing industries to try and to try and uh, and, uh, and and cope with. And of course, space seemed really open and really free at first, but when you get to sort of sizzling space, and when you get to uh, the just beyond the immediate atmosphere, the yeah, things can get really pretty crowded pretty quickly when you're continuously firing things out there. But um, when you go beyond that, there are reasons why we, we don't want to contaminate. One is is the science. So you don't want forward contamination. We want to know what we can know about life and we would like to detect uh, rudimentary forms of current or historic life somewhere else. But in order to be sure of the results, we have to make sure that we didn't bring it there. And uh, we have done that kind of thing before. Somebody sneezed on one of the, the camera lenses for the Apollo landing uh, <laughs> missions. And uh, on a different world, that could have had very different consequences. That stuff wouldn't, uh, that, that wouldn't uh, happen now. But we want to protect these places for the, for the, uh, for the science. And we want to make sure that uh, certain kinds of irreversible changes are done in the right way. 
So, for example, you speak about terraform. Now, if you're going to terraform Mars, then you have to melt some of that water and carbon dioxide ice at the at the uh, at the polar caps. That's a one-shot deal. You know, <laughs> if you if you do that the wrong way, then you just end up with a with a an, a, a more or less even or or unevenly distributed package of ice from the the rest of uh, the the rest of the of the planet. So if we go in gung ho and mess it up, then the possibilities of successful and viable process of term terraforming might be compromised for hundreds of years, perhaps even permanently. So we've got an ethical responsibility to make sure that if we're doing these things, then we're doing them in a in a reasonable manner that we are not just guilty of impatience, that we actually have the technologies to succeed in reasonable in, in reasonable projects. Now, I've spoken about the nature of these environments as something that merits ethical consideration and certain kinds of protection. And of course, the same is true of the of the the earth. But what's interesting in relation to one of the many interesting things in relation to discourse of protection down here is that the the more nineteenth century ideas that wilderness means complete virgin territory, never touched by human hand, never impacted upon by humanity. That that doesn't work for anywhere on the earth now because of the way in which the uh, humans have impacted upon the atmosphere. There aren't places that uh, are free of the the human stain, as it were, or the human impact. And that's not, that's not necessarily, in all cases, a, a bad thing. So we have a, we have a more modest conception of what wilderness is, which is that there are certain kinds of impact that uh, are not allowed. So if something's wilderness, then uh, yes, people are allowed to visit with certain constraints. Yes, we accept that the uh, that the the volumes of carbon locked into the rocks will be impacted by industry elsewhere. But it's wilderness by virtue of the fact that we're not allowed to use it as a, a industrial resource, for example. Wilderness in that sense, and that's much more that's much more modest. So when we translate that more modest conception of wilderness to the moon or to or to Mars, again, doesn't exclude all human activity. It doesn't exclude all human industrial activity, but it does mean that there are ethical constraints upon the ways in which that that can legitimately uh, that can legitimately be done, and there has to be discussion about how much impact we can have and where that impact should uh, where that impact should be. Obviously there's a strong case for for keeping impact away from the most distinctive areas of the moon or Mars. If one wants a complete protection and a hands off attitude, I don't think that's I don't think that's a viable ethic given the nature of our the nature of our society. I think that uh, that ought implies can. I don't think that's a. <laughs> I don't think we can protect the, uh, these places in in those ways. Uh, should even if we wished to 
if we wish to do so. A lot of what you're saying sounds like environmental ethics, but the way environmental ethics developed on Earth generally is that it's basically summed up in the one word green. It's about ecosystems, organic life, the green movement. Um, obviously, space is, among other things, not at all green, and we terraform it. Yeah, so it's not a, So here we make a distinction between ecology and environments. Ecology is about uh, systems that contain living things and how they how they function as 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 integrated integrated wholes. Environments are just the surroundings, and uh, sometimes the surroundings have life in them. Sometimes the surroundings the surroundings don't. You can go places. In the earth and on the earth, where you don't get get life, but you still have uh, you still have environments. So the the thought then is that well, we need to have an expanded conception. That and many environmental ethicists already have that kind of conception. They think of of say rivers as uh, as ethically considered in various respects. Now, of course. Rivers have life forms within them, but even if they didn't, then you'd have environmental ethicists who would say that the Colorado River has to be. We have to think of it in particular, in particular ways. The commercial exploitation of space. I've seen particular concerns about the, the possibility that this is basically just going to benefit rich people, big companies. Everyone else gets left out. Mm-hmm. Is that a moral problem or just a political concern? Well. That's a that's an interesting concern. It's the concern that you get sometimes in environmental ethics and sometimes in science fiction, which is here. I'm going to pitch my science fiction screenplay to you. Yeah, I don't actually have one, but I'm going to invent just now. Um, so this is copyright. If anyone hears this, this is. This is I hope some people will hear. <laughs> if Spielberg's out there, he should get in touch with me. Definitely, we have something to talk about. But uh, here is the the rogue individual who finds themselves caught up in a mining operation, which is run by the company. The company is so large that they wield vast political influence, as well as having economic power both in space and back on Earth. This is a model that we've iterated numerous. Numerous times. How likely is that in relation to space? Well, if the only places where you're getting development is going to be on the moon or on Mars, then uh, monopoly type systems might operate. But if you start talking about the asteroid belt, which is really where you want to go if you're going to build large scale structures off of planets, and there's just, and there's no reason why because of the small number of, of planets and moons that you can, you can work with. There's no reason why you would want to simply restrict yourself to that. Plus there's all those, uh, those, uh, those metal resources which are out there in the, in, the, in the asteroid belt. It's really, really big. The asteroids are very far apart from, uh, very far apart from, uh, from one another. Space is a big place. It's, it's not a place which lends itself particularly well to a... Uh, Particularly well to to monopolies. Quite apart from the political ramifications and repercussions of having power concentrated in a small number of hands, you certainly wouldn't want that. And 
if you're talking about settlements, we have to remember that authoritarianism generates its own counterculture. And monopoly systems are <laughs> inherently authoritarian. And countercultures beyond a certain can point in space can be quite, you know, it's quite dangerous. What, what do you do? Do you stop producing oxygen? Do you have the, uh, do, uh, there's a whole range of things that you can do that you're at liberty to do in terms of protest here on Earth that would just be absolutely lethal if you tried them in, in space. So the kinds of settlement political structures that you need to evolve into uh, I think have to be ones that are, uh, are non-authoritarian, where you have redundancy built into the system. You can't have one oxygen supplier. <laughs> this is this is crazy. That that's just giving your lives over to over to the over to a boardroom. You have to have redundancy. You have to have multiple suppliers. You have to have a have multiple a, multiple sources coming in. Now, I'm not denying that the first settlements that we have, if we manage to get to the point of of settlement will almost certainly inherit the command command uh, systems of uh, that, that they went with. So you have that initial element of of uh, of authoritarianism there. But a great many things really militate against anyone being allowed to monopolise. Yes, in the early stages, big players will emerge, and they will be SpaceX is just better, bigger, better more efficient than anyone else that's, that's, that's around. And they're likely to be bigger, better, and so on, for quite a while to come. So lots of smaller players will lose the shirts off of their backs. Uh, there will be big players, as there, as there are uh, in these emerging sectors. But once you develop the technology, it's very, very difficult to stop people from piggybacking off of that and, and developing rival commercial, uh, rival commercial interests. So, if the company story is is true, then our future in space is just going to be nasty, British and short. Uh, but if you can get beyond that to uh, multiple players, multiple stakeholders, uh, then you are much more in a position to have a sustainable process of development, and you're also much in, in a much better position to have a a viable dialogue and practical impact in terms of the the environmental ethics of the environmental ethics of space. If you go up against one big player, it's really really tough. Rio Tinto Sink is a tough opponent to go up against. If you've got multiple players bidding for the ways in which they would uh, they would carry out processes, then you you get more uh, you get more leverage. We've been talking largely about ethics as a sort of constraints. It tells us what not to do, what we mustn't do. Mm-hmm. But I wonder whether you think ethics might also play a more positive role, give us things to aim for in space. Yeah, I, I think so. I'm not well convinced of a whole heap of arguments about why we should go. We should go because there is a biological imperative to explore and to move into new frontiers. I'm not sure that there is maybe that's a species trait. It doesn't look to be an individual trait. People, people will stay at home until you kick them out. That's pretty much the human human history. You don't 
you don't think, mm, well, I've got enough to eat here, and I've got we will we will cater for and 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 so on. I think I'll go over there where there's a reasonable chance of me starving and dying a horrible and gruesome protracted death. Humans don't don't do that, but as a species, we have tended to we have tended to expand. Not always a good thing. Um, but I guess I'm going to say that. I quite like the intuition, and it is an intuition. I'm not sure how we begin to build an ethical, you know, a rigorous ethical argument for it. I quite like the, the intuition that perhaps we do have a duty to extend a, either human life or life as such. I think that the, the presence of life is a, by and large a good thing. And that doesn't mean to say that you have to have life everywhere. It does mean that, uh, for example, we don't know how much life there is out there. We don't know really if there is life out there. We would like to believe that there is. We have some reasons to believe that there is. On balance, there probably is. Um, but we don't know that. And through our neglect and negligence of possibilities for extending life, um, it would be a bad thing. It would be a dereliction of a certain kind of duty if we allowed uh, life to die out um, through that kind of failure. So there is the expansion of the presence of, of life, or possibly of, of human life too. To life to to other world. Plus, there is the the growing sense that we are running out of terrestrial resources. That does seem to be happening. You can see it in terms of the of the metals. Now, the Earth's got a dirty big metallic inner bit. Yeah. But 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 we can hardly hollow out there. The metals we can extract. Limited resource, many of them due to uh, due to run out over the next few hundred hundred years. Yes, we will have new technologies. Yes, we will be better at extracting, and that will extend the the, the time span a little bit. Yes, we will have new materials and so on. But it's difficult seeing us doing without the, uh, doing without without metals. So I think there's a good case for having a a graduated shift to a, a more a, a more balanced system, which is not restricted to a, to one planet, which we happen to have messed up in some quite severe some quite severe ways. I think there's a good that's 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 a decent picture of the future to me. The sentiment I sometimes see is we've already got as far as the moon. Mm. And then we've currently stopped sending human beings there. Yeah. Wouldn't it be a huge disappointment for our entire species if we never went back? Well, it's disappointment from maybe not for the entire species, maybe for me, maybe for you, maybe for a lot of people. I'm guessing a lot of people have more immediate pressing things on their, on their, uh, on their, their uh, on their. I guess it's what we do. If we if we can go and do things badly, we can go and do the same, make the same mistakes. I don't think that's 
I don't think that's necessarily the the outcome that will happen because we're starting in a in a different way and the dynamics of living in space impose restrictions and constraints upon us which we cannot ignore. Uh, I don't mean to say that they are morally inescapable. I mean to say that they are physically inescapable. That there are certain aspects of uh, the, the sheer nature of space that, that imposes certain ways of of of, uh, of doing things and, and needs certain needs for humans to work with, with one another in order to get different kinds of jobs done. Thank you for talking to Paul Academy. Thank you.